Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 71, The Arsenal and the Bank. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Last episode, we began discussing America's road to the Great War. As we saw, the United States underwent major shifts in its social and political makeup in the years prior to 1914. During the Gilded Era, the U.S. economy grew faster than any other economy on Earth, producing more wheat, steel, and pig iron than any of her European counterparts. By the early 20th century, the United States was positioned to be a major player on the international stage, and the outbreak of war in 1914 would signal her emergence as a global power. In this episode, we are going to continue our examination of the factors leading to America's entry into the war. But instead of trying to cover everything from 1914 to 1917, I decided to split the episodes up once again. This episode will focus on the years 1914 to 1916, where we will lay the groundwork for the key decisions made in 1917. Episode 72, then, will focus exclusively on events between February and April 1917. I humbly apologize for any disappointment this may have caused, but rest assured there is some really awesome stuff here that I could not afford to pass up. So, as we discussed last episode, President Woodrow Wilson responded to the outbreak of war by issuing a proclamation of strict neutrality which had been the traditional U.S. response to European conflict. Wilson understood all too well that siding with either these central powers or Entente would spark a powder keg amongst America's mixed populations. Most Americans saw the war as a tragedy, a terrible misstep which promised only pain and suffering for millions in Europe and abroad. In short, the conflict was a European affair. The United States would be better off staying out of it altogether. According to Wilson's biographer, Robert W. Tucker, Wilson possessed an uncanny ability to articulate the fears and aspirations of his people, and this ability paid off handsomely during the first three years of the conflict, as Wilson worked to keep the United States on the neutral path. Even his most vocal critics, which included former President Ted Roosevelt's whose aggressive attitudes ran counter to Wilson's, found their criticisms had little traction among the public. Wilson was exactly the kind of president the public wanted him to be. They wanted a president who could temper the warring parties without sacrificing American interests. Never forget that American sympathies remained split between the warring parties, with large numbers of Irish, German, and Jewish Americans favoring the central powers. Wilson was well aware of this divide and he went to great lengths to avoid antagonizing the aforementioned groups. Soon after the war broke out, Wilson told an associate, quote, We definitely have to be neutral, since otherwise our mixed populations would wage war on each other. End quote. So now we need to ask ourselves, what happened? How did the United States go from a posture of strict neutrality to unprecedented full-scale involvement in European war. The first thing we need to do is to dispel the myth that Americans were oblivious or indifferent to events in Europe. Quite the opposite, actually. The war was front-page news across the nation, 
and it was not long before its schisms were felt. Americans were quick to appreciate that what was unfolding in Europe was unlike anything that had happened before. The first warning signs came on July 31st, when the American economy ground to a halt when it was announced the great powers were mobilizing. Desperate to protect their finances, panicked European investors began selling their securities, and then converting those proceeds into gold. Since most governments still operated on the gold standard, this produced a run on gold, which threatened American economic stability. On the day Austria-Hungary, Germany, and France mobilized, more gold was withdrawn in a single day than would normally be withdrawn in a month. American gold deposits ran so low that the Treasury Department ordered the New York, Chicago, and Philadelphia stock exchanges closed until after Thanksgiving. According to historian Michael Nyberg, the financial crisis that summer was every bit as shocking and disorienting as the crashes of 1929 and 2008. The U.S. economy was already in a recession, which caused harsh unemployment in the Northeast and Midwest. 16% of New York's labor force lacked jobs, railroad construction ceased, and the cost of wheat reached record levels. Considering that 91% of America's exports and 88% of its imports came on European ships, American businesses were hit hard by the crisis. Grains, copper, meat, oil, and steel lay idle in warehouses with nowhere to go. Cotton producers in the South faced total ruin, since 77% of their cotton was purchased by Germany, accounting for 500 million annual revenue. This caused cotton prices to drop from 12.5 cents per pound in July to less than 7 cents in October. These numbers are shocking to say the least, which prompted the president of the New York Chamber of Commerce to comment that Europe had placed an embargo on the commerce of the world. But it wasn't just American finances that felt the collapse of transatlantic trade. Approximately 130,000 Americans in Europe were suddenly cut off from their finances when the bank slammed shut. Tens of thousands of them flocked to London or Paris and flooded the embassies hoping to catch the next boat home. Those trapped in Berlin even took the pragmatic step of sewing miniature American flags to avoid being mistaken as Canadians or other English-speaking Britons. To get these stranded folks home, the embassies in London, Paris, and Berlin coordinated with Washington and came up with a novel solution. Their solution was perhaps the most American solution of American solutions, and I say that with love and respect. What they did was, they took a battleship, they loaded it with 8 million in gold, and on August the 6th, sailed it to London. The well-escorted gold was then used to purchase American credits in European banks. This solution proved effective. Over the next five weeks, Americans made their way home on any ship they could find, but it would take until September before the last one arrived home. From California to New York Island, from the redwood forests to the Gulf Stream waters, Americans reacted to the war with shock and dismay, but they responded to it with charity and sympathy. Americans from all walks of life donated millions to civilian charities. Most of the donations went to French, Belgian, and Serbian relief programs, designed to help those people most affected by the fighting. New York City, for example, 
raised nearly $637,000 by December 1914, which was a pretty hefty sum in 1914 dollars. Even those less fortunate Americans felt the patriotic drive to contribute. The African-American community, despite its well-placed criticisms of European behavior in Africa, was quick to act. In November 1914, African-Americans in Philadelphia raised enough money to purchase an entire ship full of supplies. But Americans did more than just open their pocketbooks. As we know, thousands volunteered in both civilian and military services. More than 6,000 Americans were serving with the British Army by 1916, and a new study out of Canada suggests that nearly 40,000 Americans fought in the Canadian Army, not to mention those who served in the French Foreign Legion, notably the poet Alan Seeker, who would lose his life on July 4, 1916, fighting for the French Army on the Somme. Another example of American volunteerism was of course the famed Lafayette Escadrille, an all-American fighter plane squadron which served as part of the French Air Service. Formed in 1916, the Lafayette Escadrille would take part in some of the fiercest battles on the Western Front, becoming PR darlings in French and American newspapers. In addition to the military sphere, there were volunteer nurses, ambulance drivers, doctors, and a plethora of other non-combatant and support roles. To say that American involvement began in 1917 is a misnomer. Americans had actually been involved from the beginning. But an important point needs to be made here. While Americans served in the British and French militaries, there has been no evidence of Americans serving in German, Austrian, or Ottoman militaries, which I think speaks volumes about where their sympathies rested. And there is a simple explanation for this mismatch. Although most Americans believe the war was a European affair, pro-Entente sympathies were entrenched from the beginning. A poll of 350 newspapers in November 1914 showed that 46% expressed pro-Allied sympathies, while just 5% were pro-German. The rest were neutral. Those individuals who supported the German agenda, such as the poet George Sylvester Viorecki, did not want to see the United States fight to defend European interests. In his pro-German newspaper, The Fatherland, Viorecki defended German culture and U.S.-German relations, reminding his readers that German finances backed Union efforts during the Civil War. Furthermore, as many German sympathizers were quick to point out, Germany had yet to wage war since Kaiser Wilhelm came to power in 1888, unlike Britain, Russia, Italy, or Serbia. Now it should be made clear that although most Americans did see Germany as the aggressor, they were careful to differentiate between the German people and the German government. Americans blamed Prussian militarism, believing that the military cabals in Berlin had orchestrated the war for their own agendas. Adding to this growing anti-German sentiment were the reports of German behavior in Belgium, which began filtering across the Atlantic. Now, what's interesting here is that Americans were suspicious of all belligerent news sources. They didn't trust the British any more than they did the French or German. But in early August 1914, a cadre of American journalists were sent to Belgium as foreign observers. Their job was to report the war unbiasedly for American audiences, 
and it was these reports which shocked the nation. Two journalists of note here were Richard Harding Davis, America's most trusted war correspondent, and Mary Roberts Reinhardt, a famed mystery novelist who became the first woman to tour the Western Front. The reports from Davis, Reinhardt, and dozens of other American journalists delivered the war's horrors to breakfast tables across America. Where belligerent nations often published conservative casualty estimates, Americans were soon reading battles with casualties in the hundreds of thousands. Human atrocities were also described in vivid detail. Descriptions of the Belgian university town of Louvain being put to torch by German troops convinced more Americans that Germany was the aggressor. In the southern United States, German actions in Belgium drew immediate comparisons to Sherman's raising of Atlanta 50 years earlier, invoking additional pro-Entente sympathies. From a humanitarian perspective, Americans were horrified by the descriptions coming from the continent. It was clear that Germany was the aggressor, since it was her armies in Belgium and France, and not the other way around. Thus, the war became one of liberty versus submission, the free peoples of Europe against the absolute regime of Prussian militarism. The irony here, of course, was that Russia was the most absolute state of them all, and one could not sympathize with liberty and equality while cheering for czarist autocracy. But we'll leave that off to the side until next episode. But regardless of where your sympathies rested, most Americans appreciated that the United States was in a unique position to profit from the war. Britain had historically been America's best customer, and Wilson's pro-British staff were keen to maintain that relationship. Between 1914 and 1917, the United States was the Entente's lifeline for weapons, munitions, clothing, medical supplies, and financing. A quick glance at the trade numbers tell the full story. From 1914 to 1916, U.S. exports to France and Britain grew an astonishing 356%, from $753 million to $2.75 billion per year. Meanwhile, exports to Germany dropped 90%, from $345 million to just $29 million. France and Britain received $2.3 billion in private bank loans, while Germany received just $27 million. Overall exported manufactured goods doubled from 6 to 12% of the total GDP. In total, the U.S. trade surplus more than tripled, from $690 million in 1913 to over $3 billion in 1916. Munitions exports went from $40 million in 1913 to $1.3 billion by 1916. 8,000 new millionaires were created, and American banks held $2 billion in allied debt. J.P. Morgan became Britain and France's official purchasing agent, having raised $2.6 billion by April 1917. These numbers help explain why the Germans often accused the United States of being both the arsenal and the bank of the Entente. So although the United States would not formally enter the war until 1917, it had informally been involved from the very beginning. This of course raises an important question. Was the United States ever neutral to begin with? There was also an ethical dilemma to consider as well. How could the United States claim moral neutrality 
when they were profiting off arms sales to the belligerents. To be clear, American businesses maintained the right to trade with any belligerent nation, including Germany and Austria-Hungary. But with the naval blockade in place, the British ensured the supplies bound for Germany, whether for civilian or military purposes, were confiscated and sent back. Here, the Germans had ground for criticisms. American business leaders would furrow their brows at British policy, but only when it affected commerce, not because it contributed to the malnutrition of German civilians. In other words, American goods, finances, and weapons directly contributed to the killing, maiming, and malnutrition of millions between 1914 and 1917. Could this really be considered neutrality? And was this model of business sustainable? The answer to these questions is no and no. There was no hiding the fact that by mid-1915, the United States had significant financial investment in an Allied victory. And while it is true that Wilson often disputed with the British over blockade restrictions, those arguments never threatened to be anything more than academic. The Germans, on the other hand, pressed Wilson to publicly denounce the blockade, something Wilson would never do. For Germany, this was further evidence of America's perceived duplicity. The dispute over British naval policy came to a head in May of 1915, with the sinking of the Lusitania. As we already talked about the Lusitania way back in, holy crap, episode 29, we are not going to retrace our steps here. But the loss of 128 American lives was a turning point in American perceptions of the war. After the sinking, Wilson took a firm pro-British stance and cast blame on Germany. This horrified Wilson's Secretary of State, William Jennings Bryan, who was a trenchant pacifist. Bryan was dismayed by Wilson's threat to sever diplomatic relations with Germany, believing this response to be too anti-German. Bryan believed that if the United States was truly neutral, then the responsibility should be shared between Britain and Germany. After all, the Lusitania was a British ship staffed by British officers. Wilson, of course, refused to point fingers at London, and this caused Bryant to resign his post on June the 7th. Bryant's resignation marked a noted shift in Wilson's attitude. Bryant had been one of Wilson's earliest supporters, and his departure removed one of the few voices who supported unabashed strict neutrality. In his place, Wilson appointed 51-year-old Robert Lansing, the former State Department counselor whose pro-British sympathies were more in line with Wilson's views. As we know, the sinking of the Lusitania would not bring about America's entry into the war. But what it did do was shift the discussion away from strict neutrality and towards a new policy of armed neutrality. The Lusitania had shown that American safety was not guaranteed, and the longer the war continued, there was a real concern that the U.S. would get dragged in eventually. This anxiety hung over the nation like a lead balloon, and if Wilson was unwilling to take the next step, his critics were not going to wait. After the Lusitania incident, the U.S. government took a hard look at the state of its armed forces, and it was painfully obvious that the United States was not prepared to fight a global war. This, of course, helped both sides of the neutrality argument. Being unprepared 
meant all the more reason to avoid fighting altogether. But on the other hand, bulking up the military may propel the belligerents to take American concerns more seriously. After all, you don't get the village blacksmith to start making swords when the enemy is already crowning the hill. So let us now turn to America's military. Despite possessing the world's third largest navy, America's air and land forces lagged behind its European counterparts. In the years 1908 to 1913, the United States spent only $438,000 on military and naval aviation, whereas in that same period, France and Germany spent $22 million and Russia $12 million. The regular army itself totaled well under 100,000 men, good enough to rank it 19th in the world, behind Chile, Serbia, and Belgium. The army was divided into 30 infantry regiments, 15 cavalry regiments, and 6 field artillery regiments. Some units were spread out across isolated garrisons in the Midwest and were nowhere near wartime strength. Supporting the regular army were 120,000 National Guardsmen, who were controlled by state governments. The National Guard at the time was poorly trained and poorly led. Only half had ever fired a rifle, and a third had never drilled as much as 24 hours in a given day. To put these numbers into context, the French army had twice as many men killed or wounded in the first 12 days of the war as the entire American army had in its ranks. Despite the infantry being equipped with modern rifles, its artillery regiments lacked guns and shells. Adding to this mess was the fact that America did not have anything resembling a unified army. State governors exercised more authority over their militaries than the War Department, meaning there were essentially 49 commanders-in-chief, 49 standards of mobilization, 49 modes of weaponry, and 49 strategic doctrines. This was hardly practical, to say the least. Things were no better in the aviation sector. The Army possessed only 11 aircraft, and even in an emergency could produce just 100 more within a year. In comparison, France and Germany possessed 1,400 planes. Russia 1,000, Britain 900, Austria-Hungary 600, Belgium 60, Italy 300, and Japan 20. Clearly, no major power was going to take the United States seriously. So in the summer of 1915, Theodore Roosevelt, along with two former war secretaries, led a growing chorus of leaders calling for greater military preparedness. With the assistance of top military officials, these men successfully resurrected a pre-war military service program designed to increase American preparedness. Creatively named the Citizens Military Training Camp, the CMTC, is perhaps more widely known by its informal name, the Plattsburgh Camps. The Plattsburgh Camps operated like private military camps for wealthy college kids. Students who enrolled in the program received basic officers' training without any obligation to call up for active duty. In other words, college kids forked over hefty sums of money just to get barked at by retired army officers. Now this may not sound like the most ideal way to spend your summer. Personally, I would take a hard pass on it. But the program was somewhat successful. 600 men from 89 different colleges enrolled that summer. And in total, 
40,000 graduated the program between 1915 and 1916. Now, of course, no one involved in the Plattsburgh camps expected the program to result in a national army. But it did help guilt Wilson into taking military preparedness seriously. Furthermore, the camps did produce a small but influential cadre of officers possessing basic military skills. And these men will really come in handy when the draft is introduced in May of 1917. The Plattsburgh camps had one more important detail. They showed that Americans were willing to answer the call if the call was made. Although Wilson remained firmly committed to neutrality, even he began to see the necessity of military preparedness. So in February 1916, Wilson called for the creation of the greatest navy in the world, but also urged widespread military training for civilians. This culminated with the passing of the National Defense Act in May of 1916, a bill which brought sweeping changes to the Army. The National Defense Act authorized the expansion of the wartime strength of the regular Army to 286,000 men, and put the National Guard under the control of the War Department, rather than the state governors. It also created a new Reserve Officers Training Corps program at colleges and universities. This officers program would subsequently facilitate the mobilization of 89,500 officers during the Great War. Now we need to be careful of a few things here. Just because the United States saw the need for armed preparedness, there remained little desire to get involved. Men like Roosevelt remained the exception rather than the rule at this point. To see where American temperament rested, we need look no further than the 1916 election in which Wilson was narrowly re-elected. Wilson defeated his Republican opponent, Charles Evan Hughes, with 277 electoral votes to Hughes's 254. Wilson also carried the popular vote by just 578,140 votes, the narrowest margin until 2008. Wilson's campaign cry, He kept us out of war, reflected the popular belief that the war remained a European problem beyond America's scope. But one could see a change in public tone. Wilson, for one, was never comfortable with the slogan, believing it was the American people who would decide America's fate and not him. There were also some concerning signs in the voting patterns. A large section of the Irish vote had turned on Wilson this time around, and they had two good reasons for doing so. First was the U.S. invasion of Catholic Mexico on March the 10th. Wilson had ordered troops into the country to capture the elusive bandit Pancho Villa. This had been in retaliation for Villa's raid on Columbus, New Mexico, which killed 15 Americans on March the 9th. Led by future AEF commander General John Pershing, the Villa expedition would jackknife against Mexico's rugged terrain and poor logistics. The Army's poor showing helped convince Wilson and Congress of the need for reform, leading to the National Defense Act two months later. The second reason hit closer to home. That Easter, Dublin became a blazing furnace when Irish rebels stormed government offices across the capital. Over three days of fighting, some 220 Dubliners had been killed. The British response was harsh. Fifteen rebel leaders were executed and 3,000 other Irishmen, 
usually seized at random, were interned in England. Despite calls for clemency from both the Catholic Church and U.S. Senate, British behavior in Ireland touched off a wave of Anglophobia among Irish Americans. The British seemed intent on proving that they were only marginally less brutal than the Germans. According to John Milton Cooper, Ireland damaged Britain's moral standing in American eyes the same way Belgium had done for the Germans. Furthermore, the United States was rattled by a pair of domestic events which took place that summer. The first event in question occurred in the pre-dawn hours of July 30, 1916. In a spectacular explosion in New York's Black Tom Island, 1,000 tons of munitions destined for France and Britain was set ablaze by German agents. The ear-splitting explosion registered 5.0 on the Richter scale, and shattered windows 40 kilometers away. Fortunately, only seven people were killed, but hundreds more were injured by falling debris. The Black Tom Island explosion was the pinnacle effort of an ongoing German sabotage ring operating in the United States. At the time, U.S. officials did their best to squelch rumors of German complicity by blaming negligent employees and the various companies operating in the area, namely a pair of night watchmen who lit smudge pots to keep the mosquitoes away. The investigation failed to turn up any evidence linking the explosion to German authorities. Major newspapers suspected German involvement, but without tangible proof there was no case to be had. It took until 1933 before the truth was finally revealed. A national inquiry into the blast found German agents and the German government responsible. The operation was funded through the German embassy in Washington, and coordinated by Captain Franz von Papen. Yes, that same von Papen, who would help bring Hitler to power in 1933. German agents were also responsible for additional sabotage efforts during the war. This included a bombing of the vice president's office and repeated assassination attempts against the family of J.P. Morgan. The second incident that sent the zeitgeist to rattling occurred in the autumn of 1916. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon on October 7th, Pedestrians strolling along the harbor of Newport, Rhode Island, were disturbed to discover that a German submarine lay in port. The German submarine was U-53, and its captain was 31-year-old Hans Rose. Captain Rose spent six hours in port, allowing his boat and his crew to be photographed for the newspapers. Rose even allowed U.S. naval officials to inspect the U-boat's newly improved diesel engines. After a brief furlough, where Rose paid his respects to the admiral of a local destroyer flotilla, Rose went into town, purchased several newspapers, and returned to his boat. The newspapers Rose purchased contained the times and destinations of every ship leaving port. Rose weighed anchor and put to sea. The following morning, Newport Harbor was choked with black smoke. Using the newspaper listings Rose acquired, U-53 intercepted and sank five ships leaving port, three British, one Dutch, and one Norwegian, totaling 20,691 tons. No Americans were harmed, but the presence of an active U-boat right off the coast caused a considerable panic. 
the U.S. Navy scrambled a destroyer flotilla to rescue survivors, but were quick to note that the sinkings did not violate international law. Survivor testimonies concluded that Rose provided ample warning and allowed crews to abandon ship prior to sinking it. Now, the British were understandably furious about all this, especially since the United States had let an active U-boat escape unmolested. However, as a neutral country, the United States had no moral obligation to get involved, and since none of the ships had been American, no legal right to get involved either. Had the U.S. Navy captured, or sunk, U-53, it would have been an act of war, and you need not be a diplomatic expert to imagine what would have happened next. And just as a quick side note, those five ships sunk by Rose were added to his total, helping Rose become one of the deadliest U-boat commanders in 1917. Rose would go on to sink 79 ships in his career, for a total of 213,987 gross tons. These events went a long way in convincing Americans that war was no longer avoidable. Most Americans still had no desire to get involved, but the question Wilson and every American had to ask themselves was, was neutrality keeping America safe, or was it putting it in greater danger? Remember, Wilson believed that the United States had a moral obligation to lead the New World Order, that the U.S. was a beacon of freedom against European tyranny, an oasis of unobstructed commerce, free market capitalism, and open democracy. As late as December 1916, Wilson held hope that a mediated settlement could be reached. This would give the United States a powerful hand in the post-war settlements. Wilson remained optimistic, but he did not consider the reality. Why would any of the great powers, each having lost hundreds of thousands, if not millions of men, agree to a settlement supervised by a non-European military upstart whose perceived neutrality was already under the microscope? What message would that send to their populations? And in here laid the problem. If the United States was to reach its destiny, it had to have a hand in the post-war negotiations. The problem here was, what would this post-war world look like? And if America missed out, would its safety and security be guaranteed? There were, of course, two possible outcomes for the war. Either the Entente would win, or the Central Powers would. Full stop. As we saw earlier, Americans were sympathetic to the Entente, and an Anglo-French victory certainly offered the most amicable outcome. But on the other hand, a German victory possessed a direct challenge to American securities. Remember that France and Britain possessed large overseas empires, and there was a very real concern that they would be forced to turn over their colonial holdings to Germany if Germany emerged victorious. For example, in February 1916, Life magazine published a satirical map of North America, depicting what the continent might look like if the U.S. did not take steps to defend itself. Essentially, the map shows the United States as a colonial outpost for the Central Powers, split five ways between Germany, Austria-Hungary, Turkey, Japan, and Mexico. If you're interested, I posted a copy of the map to the greatwarpodcast.podbean.com, so go take a look. I'll wait for you to come back. Okay, so you looked? Great, let's continue. Looking at that map today, 
one can be forgiven for thinking it was unfound hyperbole. But it did reflect some real anxieties. As we discussed in episode 69, the United States had not enjoyed friendly relations with Japan or Mexico. It will be remembered that Japan took advantage of their military alliance with Britain to seize the German Far East colonies during the war's opening weeks. Japan's military reach now extended into the Marshall and Caroline Islands, putting them alongside American holdings in the Philippines and Hawaii. Furthermore, there were rumors that Mexico had floated the idea of selling Japan a naval base off the Californian coast. So with all of this in mind, it is easy to imagine the public reaction to the publication of the Zimmerman telegram on March the 1st. Germany's offer to support Mexican claims to Arizona, Texas, and New Mexico sent shockwaves across the country. Suddenly, the Life magazine map did not appear so satirical. Next episode, we'll look at the three events in 1917 which would push America into the war. These three events happened in rapid succession. The first was Germany's decision to resume unrestricted submarine warfare. The second, the emergence of the Zimmerman telegram. The third factor? Well, that occurred some 7,000 kilometers away on March 2nd. On that day, Tsar Nicholas II abdicated the Russian throne. In his stead, the Russians established a new provisional government under Alexander Kerensky. It was hoped that this new Russian government would re-energize the stagnant Russian war effort and bring novel democratic reform. In the United States, news of the Tsar's abdication was met with hope and optimism. With the oldest autocratic state now out of the war, America could now enter the war, not for Europe's sake of course, but to make the world safe for democracy. That's it for this week. As always, be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow the show on Twitter at Great War Podcast or email me directly thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. This has been episode 71 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.